and welcome to this week's VFX show where we are treading on new ground and going, uh, well, I think into some pretty creepy territory with Birdman, but maybe I'm alone. And we're joined by a new uh, co-host, uh, Adam Lissagor. How are you, sir? I'm very good. Thanks for having me today, Mike. And we're incredibly uh, glad to have you on the show. Um, I know your work from just being the kind of go-to guy for um, especially, uh, I guess, Silicon Valley's favorite videographer is probably one of the ways to describe it. But uh, (laughs) your company does amazing work and you seem to be, uh, I don't know, you just have such a great dry sense of humor in an otherwise, you know, really informative kind of pieces. But for those that don't know your work, how did you get started doing this? Um, thank you very much for the tremendous compliment, first of all. Um, I got started because I was, I was working in visual effects um, right around 2006, 2007. I'd been in it for a while, working out of hydraulics in Santa Monica. Um, where Jeff was. Where Jeff was, exactly. That's where we, where we became friends. And um, I started to get into the web more and into the tech space and interested in that, that as a creative format and medium. Uh, then the iPhone SDK came out, which allowed developers to start creating in that um, in that new format. And a friend and I decided to collaborate on, a, on an app for Twitter, for writing on Twitter. Um, when it came time to release that app, I decided to make a video, sort of a demo video, but a little bit more, um, as we say, peppers in the gumbo, I now, guess. Now, like a little more flavor be, to it. This would be Birdcage? Uh, it was called Birdhouse. Bird actually, House, there right. were so many bird-related. Right. I think it might have been called Birdman. Actually, Birdman is the <laughs> app for writing on Twitter. Because you know, both um, Jeff and I had that at uh, doing uh, tweets. I think at a NAB or a SIDGRAPH. Jeff was a uh, huge. Uh, uh, he thought it was the best thing ever. Oh, cool! Yes, uh, it was really fun. Um, it sort of engendered a community of of people who were trying to be just creative and silly and fun on Twitter. Um, and so we, we developed that app. We made uh, a video for it. Uh, and then that video ended up spawning its own sort of little niche success. Um, and then other clients in the tech space started asking me to do videos for their thing. Um, and then it just quickly snowballed and I ended up doing a video for to launch Square um, in their pilot program. And I did one for Flipboard to launch Flipboard. I did one for the Jambox. That was early on. And coin. then that was coin. Yeah, coin was in there. It's just been almost, I guess, a little more than four years now of just um, doing, you know, close to, I guess, up to 150 or so of these videos for different tech clients. And um, there's no sign of slowing. Brilliant. Well, it's really, uh, really good to have you on the show. And we're also uh, joined by Ian Fails. How are you, Ian? Good, Mike. How are you going? Uh, thanks for coming back. So that's our. Uh, that, that's our agenda this week, to look at the film Birdman. Now, <clears throat> I said this was a bit creepy. So before we get into the visual effects and a discussion or anything else, I just uh, want to discuss this point. Like, did anybody else feel slightly uncomfortable <laughs> with this film about an actor played by Michael Keaton who's sort of haunted by the character that he played as Birdman with the real-life Batman overlay that Keaton <laughs> had? I mean, I just started feeling really uncomfortable in this film. Absolutely, and it's. I think it's meant on a few different levels to unsettle you like that. Um, and I think the real question is why. Like, if you can identify what it was about the film, for me, I think it was a few different things that I ad- identified, both about the sub the substance, the subject matter, but also the technique, uh, the filmmaking technique that that I think were specifically engineered to to be unsettling. 
Yeah, so that filmmaking technique you're referring to is this idea of a giant continuous take. It's the digital version of rope, isn't it, Ian? That's right. And, you know, it, it, every camera shot pretty much stays close to the actors and because you're sort of dollying along with them, steady camming along with them the whole time, there's that sort of feeling of suspense and what is going to happen next. Um, yeah, that's exactly how I felt during the film. And you, you also don't know what's going to happen next, which is, which is, you know, the clever thing and probably one thing that made you feel a bit unsettled, Mike. Though, Ian, I think you pointed out to me, uh, it wasn't just Michael Keating who, was, uh, who is uh, a former superhero uh, Marvel-esque type uh, character. Um, do you mean that there are other characters like that around? No, or? I mean that there was another actor in the film who uh, I completely f- failed to uh, connect with as to also being in the shadow of their now no longer um, uh, optioned superhero. Oh, well, there were three of them. Three? Okay. Who, <laughs> so, so I had the Hulk. Who was this, the third one? Uh, it was um, Emma, Emma Stone was, uh, played a, um, I forget the character's name, from Spider-Man. Oh, she okay. wasn't a superhero. Yeah, she wasn't. But from the comic book universe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So yeah. So Edward Norton is Hulk. Um, that's absolutely right. And then I guess you could say Emma Stone, who was was she Mary Jane in the new Spider Man? Or I might have it wrong. Um, but I don't know the third one. Who's that? Oh no, that that no, that's what it, I mean. That was the kidding. Th- being oh, right. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do your math. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't think she Emma Stone. Gwen Stacy, a character named Gwen Stacy. Stacy. Yeah. That one didn't resonate so much uh, because, but you know, like the, in terms of a, an actual superhero with superpowers kind of thing, um, Norton, it's quite unsure from the popular press whether he bowed out of Hulk or they bowed him out of Hulk, but any which way you count it, he's not an Avenger. Um, but uh, I don't know. So I think you're right about the camera style and I want to come back to this comparison to Rope. Um, if I can, before we, we get on to the other aspects. Rope for me uh, was sort of fairly successful. It wasn't certainly the most successful film, I think, of the Hitchcock um, films, but it, it, it was an incredibly interesting film. It just felt incredibly theatrical for me and very stagey in a way that this film didn't. Um, Adam, do you think there was any kind of uh, valid comparison between the two films? Certainly. I think that one of whether or not it was intentional, I think when Hitchcock or, or any filmmaker plays with the long take, they're they're conscious of the audience's need for a cut, almost as a rele- as a mechanism for relief. Mm. Um, a cut is where you breathe, or as Walter Murch said, a cut is where you blink. And so imagine having to hold your eyes open for longer than is comfortable. Of course, you're going to feel unsettled. Um, and I, and so I, I think that the, it's almost um, a game of chicken with the audience when, an, when a filmmaker chooses to do a long take, and especially a super long take like this. They're almost challenging us to, to, to hold on to the very end until the cut comes. And I feel like that, that it speaks to probably um, you know, one of the top three reasons that, that it feels so creepy. I think I think you've really hit on something there because you know the Russian film whose name escapes me the long continuous one the the ballet that uh, goes in and out of the uh, that was shot a couple of years ago where they shot on digital the thing about that film is that it was more more like a documentary or more like some kind of spectacular that you're watching if in a sense it was the opening of the Olympics you know one thing rolled into another 
With this, my problem of uh, being unsettled was very much that emotional thing of I just wanted some relief of the personal pain that Keating was portraying so effectively as an actor. I just want, I just felt uncomfortable for him. Um, and I just wanted to cut away. I wanted something to give me some relief because I just didn't want to be that close and personal. It was like I was standing too close to Michael Keating in an event and I couldn't step away and give him some personal space. I felt like I was intruding. But did you yeah, feel, Mike, a, that, that I, I, some of that relief came from, say, when there was a laugh moment or a, you know, sort of a funny moment? That, that was the chance for the audience to get a bit of relief? I guess. What do you think, Adam? It's, a, it's an interesting theory, I guess, um, because there were certainly moments of comic relief, mostly, I think, embodied by Zach Galifianakis. Yes. Mm. Um, who, who can't who, help but be funny. Who he, he absolutely can't help it. And he was amazing. Uh, even in a dr- somewhat dramatic role, but I, I, uh, to your point, Mike, about feeling too intimate and always being too close to um, Michael Keaton's character, I, I, I have a little bit of a theory about that going that I just kind of recently hit on. If you don't, <laughs> if yeah, you can indulge me, okay. So I read this article um, last weekend about um, virtual reality and the new s- cinematic language of virtual reality. Um, so, and how it is that it is basically for, f- from all accounts, and I've, I've not spent much time with an Oculus Rift. Have you, have you guys? Yeah. Yeah. And we also know some guys that, uh, uh, the companies that produce videos for the Oculus. Oh, or not. Yeah. Okay, cool. I, I'd really like to dive into that a little bit if I can, but, um, I, uh, this, the, the article got me thinking so much and, and basically said that it's sort of the most intimate uh, medium that exists for for cinema is not exactly cinema in our, in the way we think of it, but it is so uncomfortably intimate an experience. Um, and so, right after I, th- I saw the um, Birdman, the film, I started thinking about other long takes that had been done. Like there was um, the same, you know, the DP Lubesk, Emmanuel Lubeski uh, had done Children of Men. Um, Which is and there's, one of my all-time favorite films. Sure, me too. And there are a couple of extremely long takes. The yep. final scene has one of the most exquisite long takes in all. The of one that goes in and out of the bus. Yeah, yeah, with the blood splatter on yeah. the lens and yeah. everything. Um, and that's where I think he started to open up this universe to audiences a little bit. And then this one was felt to me like the culmination of that. But then we've got something like last year's Gravity, um, where Quaron did. Um, unbelievable things with camera and moving camera in, in ways that camera has never moved before. And to me that felt like, uh, is, so it, these felt like two different exercises and I realize I'm being long winded about this. I'll try to get on with it. Um, so gravity felt like one exercise, which was to move the camera as though the camera has no gravity. Um, and then in contrast to that Birdman felt to me like an exercise in moving the camera as though the camera has zero, it doesn't exist. Um, and it, it, as though the camera were a virtual camera that was floating around in, inside of a world where there are no cuts and we're always free to be as close as we want to all the subject. I mean, there was some and, really unusually drifty shots coming from higher up in the theater down onto the stage. That Exactly. It seemed to always be able to float wherever, it, wherever its consciousness wanted to. 
though I'm sure as a filmmaker, you were like me and going, okay, okay, what rig was that? <laughs> yeah, of course. How did they hand that off? Yeah. How did they get, how, you know, you look for the seams, you know, that's what we do. Yeah, going in and out of doorways, obviously, uh, the interior and exterior stuff, you're like, yeah, okay, cut. But yeah, those uh, handoff shots where that was drifting. Now, see, I had a slightly different take of that because when I was watching it, I was A, taken out of the film by, by just pondering how the heck they did it. Okay. But then secondly, I was a bit like, well, isn't that a bit drawing attention to itself? I mean, aren't you now just kind of showing off? Like, and, <laughs> and that wasn't intimate the way. So it's interesting. Your take on that is kind of different because you see those as being a harmonious uh, parts of a similar uh, discourse. I see them as actually sort of juxtaposing each other and being quite different in what they were communicating in terms of cinematic language. Absolutely. And I think that um, it's unfortunate when, when, when that when that effect happens where you start thinking about something that's been done so meticulously because that's your craft. Um, and I think, uh, we get lucky sometimes when we get to forget about that, we get to forget everything that we know about our craft and just lose ourselves in, in the moment of what's being done. But do you, do you, do you, I mean, you, you are obviously in, in the world of filmmaking. Do you ever, do you feel like you ever get to lose yourself? I do. And look, here's the thing. Um, and I'm going to get to Ian in a second on this because he's the kind of master of invisible effects. But the thing that I really liked was it didn't occur to me until Ian pointed it out how clever they'd been in filming with the mirrors in the, um, in the dressing room. Mm. And so in those scenes in the dressing room where there was effects in terms of the levitation and throwing, um, but we, I, I, I didn't sort of, you know, I was like accepted there were some visual effects there, but I didn't kind of dwell on them. I was... I was hurting for being, you know, this kind of raw with his uh, performance. Didn't even stop to think about, well, hang on, if you had a camera here, um, you know, you'd obviously see the reflection. I think the dropping down shots that I'm thinking of where it kind of drifted down from one level of the theater to the other, maybe because there was no acting performance to carry that transition, it was more like a a piece of... Um, Motion we had, yeah, we had to get from A to B, and we did it in a kind of an elegant and clever-assed way. I started going, well, now you're just showing off. Whereas <laughs> in the dressing room, when they weren't, we weren't seeing the camera reflected in the mirrors. I was so kind of awkwardly engrossed in the film that I didn't even occur to me that, well, where the hell is the camera and the crew with that darn yeah. mirror there? Interesting, Ian. Did you have the same experience? Were you always feel like conscious of it? I was particularly conscious of it when they would do things like go into a club and it would be a dark doorway, you know, or come out of a doorway and it was dark. I noticed that one too. I did notice that too. I think there were a couple. But, I mean, the truth is that um, what the visual effects supervisor told us that there were a hundred stitching moments in the film. Now, I don't remember a hundred (laughs) moments where, you know, it was an obvious thing. So there's obviously a lot more in there than we've, than I've noticed, which I think is clever to your point, Mike, but you know, clearly they were doing it so well that I didn't even notice them. And so in that way, I guess I was engrossed in the film because, um, you know, we, we didn't see those ones, but, but yeah, the stitching didn't, the, the, the endless take didn't necessarily take me out too much because, you know, I mean, I think I was engrossed in the story and I was sort of going along with, Michael Keaton's character and, and wor- worried about him almost, you know. So I think it worked for me. But whenever they did those certain shots through the black door, you know, like a dark door, that was a little bit unsettling as well. 
Okay, well, just let's frame this in just in terms of a film for a second. Like, how do we rate this film compared to some of the others we've just mentioned? So let's take Children of Men and Gravity. Where does this film sit? And they're very different films, all three, but where do they, do they sit? Is this film uh, batting at the same kind of uh, heavyweight kind of uh, importance? Is it, uh, I mean, Gravity obviously was a technical masterpiece. Um, Children of Men was, I think, just a wonderful piece of uh, storytelling and, and writing, actually, in the, in the premise of the whole thing. So, Adam, where, where does it sit? Well, I think a lot of people are going to be more inclined to, to um, uh, diminish the importance of a film like this because it's a personal story. And it's a personal story about someone we're not meant to care about. He's a celebrity um, or an actor, even worse. <laughs> so I heard this comment today. Um, I heard this comment today was from somebody who I saw the film with three weeks ago or two weeks ago, and he said he didn't actually like it because he doesn't really care about the story of a you know an actor who's you know with a creative struggle. Um, so I think by contrast, Children of Men is a story of society and decay, and then Gravity is a story of you know on a on a much larger scale, obviously. So I think that people are likely to assign importance to the story, the actual story, in those different ways. But to me, as a, I, as a person who struggles with creative needs and identity in, in, um, identity in the context of creativity and as a, as a creative person m- making work publicly, I definitely ideal, I identify with, um, with a character who's, you know, whose mind we've, we're being led inside. I mean, I don't think, I'm pretty sure there was no actor nominations in uh, Gravity and Children of Men, that, but maybe there were, but this, this feels like a much more an actor piece. I mean, it's, yeah. y- if you were an actor, you'd probably think this should get Oscar nominations and just love it to death because uh, there is very, uh, maybe a couple of moments, but on the whole, this is like, uh, it, it hurts how real and effective the actors are in kind of giving you kind of honest performances. It's almost like seeing a kind of a checkoff play where you're in the theater and you feel like, you know, I'm a bit drained when I leave. Um, it's a remarkable acting piece. And yet, uh, yeah, I think you're probably right. Like I think that these sorts of things, a bit like comedies, don't tend to get revered in quite the way by the general population. Um, what do you think, Ian? Well, I think you're right. And the, of course, the other thing is, and we've kind of mentioned it, given that Michael Keaton was Batman, was that I can't necessarily remember a recent film where I've really, really loved him in. And then he's gone and redeemed himself in this one, you know, and it's art imitating life, isn't it? Because um, he's clearly having the same struggles perhaps in real life as he is in the film. Although the other thing about Michael Keaton is he's not a super celebrity. You don't really know much about his private life and all that sort of thing. Um but yeah, like in some ways, it's it's like this breakthrough performance from an actor we I already really like, but I just can't remember a great performance recently. Well, we saw him in RoboCop, right? That was <laughs> most recently, right? But that's not something that I no 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 no. Yeah, but I'm just yeah, saying, like that was yeah. the the last thing I think we remember yeah. seeing him in. Yeah, um, I, I I think of him and when I when I think of Michael Keaton and acting, which I don't often do, I think of him as. Uh, as the character Ray in Jackie Brown and Out of Sight, the two Elmore Leonard mm. characters, um, um, and I, I feel like his performance was pretty inspired 
in both of those in, because yeah. it was something that we'd never seen from him before. I go right to Beetlejuice and Oh multi- yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then as a second I'd go to Multiplicity just because I remember studying that film to death, <laughs> trying to work out how they were pulling everything off in terms of eyelines. Not that anyone many people liked it compared to me, but uh yeah, it was uh, technically uh, really complex. But yeah, I mean I remember when he was cast as Batman, we all went, What? That's that's incredibly not right. That's just wrong. And yet, uh, I remember when Batman came out, it seemed to be, you know, the Batman we'd been waiting for. Little did we know what was going to come and make it look positively um, cliched and uh, and dated. But then I'm a huge Nolan fan, so you know, you just can't. Don't even start with me on that one. But um, yeah, so I don't know. I felt it was awkward. But it was probably meant to be. Uh, but I don't know. Does awkward translate into appreciating the film for the acting that it? I don't know. It's it's really hard to say. I've got to say the um, the only bits that that sort of really struck out as visual effects were the visual effects scene. But there had to have been, a, as you say, in a ton of other stuff in terms of um, seamless stuff just to pull it off from a logistic point of view. And the one that I didn't anticipate that, uh, again, you informed me of was this idea of speeding up a lot of the shots. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I, I think that um, it wasn't until they got through to the editing of the film that they, um, the director realised that because of the Steadicam nature of the shots that they wanted to actually um, play with um, the rhythm and flow, as the VFX suit told me, um, of the actual film. So what they actually did was re-speed and and do some sort of time warps on some of the, the shots. Now, I wasn't told which shots they were, but that's sort of an interesting um, role for the visual effects house to, to do that, you know. Um, and everything everything was done by Rodeo FX in Montreal. Um, they actually apparently, you know, it's not, the, it's not the longest film, I think, is it? But uh, they said that they had 90 minutes of the film go through their pipeline, which is clearly a lot for a... An, an invisible effects film. Do we think that this is going to give Rodeo a suitably uh, healthy sort of bump up? Because, I mean, it really is pretty uh, pretty good, both the short sequence with the destruction and the creature stuff, but but this retiming, this blending, all of this stuff, do you think uh, Rodeo will get in? What do you yeah, reckon? Yeah, well, I mean... Because it's a pretty, yeah, pretty serious um, effort from those guys. It is a, it is a serious effort. They, they've... They're one of those studios that has actually done a fair bit of invisible work, but now they'd sort of do this real mix between big visual effects films um, and, uh, you know, taking on portions of visual effects films. They seem to have a relationship with ILM um, where they do, you know, parts of, say, Pacific Rim and, and other films. And, and then they also do these sorts of shots. Um, I'm trying to think. They had some work in the double, unless I'm getting that completely wrong. I mean, I, I definitely, I bumped them up in my head in the kind of list of companies. Uh, I, mm. you know, I'm that much of a geek, I keep a mental list. Um, Adam, do you aware of the speed-ups that uh, Ian's referring to? No, and, I'm, and one, I'm wondering where they would be because they would, unless some serious compositing uh, was done on any of them with, with moving people in them, I, I don't know, maybe there's a way to speed up a shot but then track in a hundred percent moving character into the sped up shot so that they don't, <laughs> so the character isn't moving fast. Um, yeah, I it seems really hard, doesn't it? Cause it's heavy dialogue and obviously you could pitch correct dialogue, but it would be hard push, push to look unaffected. 
Um, but yeah, they were ramping in and out all the way through the film. So I, I think Rodeo deserves um, real points for that. The other one that I'm, yeah. I'm really curious about, and I don't know, Ian, if you can eliminate this. You have this in an article on FX Guide that I just wanted to hit on. The big thing about gravity for me, this incredibly uh, breakthrough thing, was the idea of having a multi-sided LED screen so that when you took the um, virtual HDR of where, say, the Earth was and Sandra is spinning, you would literally move the Earth as the large light source as a picture of the Earth on these LED screens around the cube. So if it was on her right and she's turning upside down, she doesn't turn upside down, but the the cube's map projection does. And so the Earth moves from the left of her to the right of her, underneath her, and up on the on the other side again. And I thought, great, that's really, really good. We'll see that in the big effect shots. But it sounds like they'd made a version of that for this film for his outside shot. Did you get anything on that? Because I'm, I'm astounded they actually went that far, though obviously same DP, so, um, you know, makes sense, but... Yeah, that's right, and it is because it's the same DP. I, I think you had real success with the LED light panels from the from Gravity, and so so what what they apparently did was when Michael Keaton's character sort of levitates and has to you know or flies around New York City, they would actually go to the locations, get you know on set HDRs, um, and then those would be the things that would be played through or sort of stitched together you know, made into environments. And then on a green screen stage in Montreal, those would be the things that would be played through on the LED light panels while Michael Keaton's on a wire rig, you know, pretending to fly um, to give that same, you know, all the right lighting, as you were saying. Um, I mean, contact lighting is so important Mm. for this kind of stuff. So, Adam, with your eye watching that effect sequence, you obviously know it's an effect sequence, the guy's flying. Yeah. Did it did it work? I mean, it's actually really hard to do a good flying sequence in in absolutely cities because I think our, our our memories may go to the Matrix movies where you can clearly tell when Keanu is not Keanu um, because it's he doesn't quite move right or something. But um, it never felt it never broke for me. It never felt uh, artificial. And I feel like one of the most restrained things that they did in the first flying sequence in Birdman was that they kept the camera on the roof. And they didn't fly with him. I love that. I love that where he just jumps off and he just starts flying around the neighborhood and the camera stays put. Do you remember uh, the I, shot that I'm yeah, talking no, about? Yeah, no, very much. And there's one part of it at the end of that sequence where he's coming up from the bottom of frame and he's traveling from like southwest west to, to northeast and he's facing camera. And it's the only part of that flying sequence where I felt like he was a little crisp, a little... Um, uh, he, he wasn't placed back in the scene enough. I would have degraded him a fraction. Apart from that criticism, I think it was spectacularly good work. Um, and that was, for me, a, a new comp issue rather than a lighting issue. But normally my problem is people seem to, to drift like they, in, in most nearly every Superman film, unless it's a fully digital set, you'll get this phenomenon where he's banking to the left and you just feel like he's skidding um, mm. and doesn't have a kind of forward trajectory. And I admit that I geek out on that stuff a lot, but this one was was remarkably good, um, both for lighting and then positioning him relative to the scene so I didn't feel like he was just skidding and, and sort of twirling like he was on a, a, a wire rig. Now, clearly he must have been on some kind of wire rig, uh, at least for some of it, Ian, I'm assuming. I think he was on a wire rig for some of it. Then they also tend to have, you know, like a seat arrangement which i think they used in gravity as well um and that sort of gets rid of that wire feel 
So um, does that mean his coat was CG in places? Well, I'm, I'm not sure, but I, I imagine they augmented some pieces where they had to. I mean, the other thing was that they did shoot a bunch of scenes in New York with him on a wire rig just to probably to get some in situ stuff. Maybe when he's first levitating, I think he goes straight up um, as well. Um, and, you know, so the, the sort of mixing of the techniques also helped, I thought, with that sequence because you never sort of really worked out exactly how they were doing it. And, yeah, it was really convincing. Now, when, when Birdman's flying behind him doing the whole kind of dialogue um, scene, uh, he's hovering now flying, but, but Keating isn't. Um, they stuck Keating's mouth under the mask. Is that right? Or am I imagining that? They did. They had a, a stuntman wearing a, a suit that was, um, I think, made by Spectral Motion, who do some great practical effects work. Um, and then Rodeo also augmented the, the feathers, you know, the wings that, Birdman has but for you know it is actually meant to be Michael Keaton in the suit so they got Michael Keaton in a in a separate shoot and sort of shot him with a couple of red cameras um, and then you know using some projection techniques they would project his face which is mostly his mouth and nose I think because of the way the mask works um, onto the Birdman costume hmm Adam, do you uh, read uh, graphic novels and stuff? I don't, I'm afraid. So neither do I. Did you not also agree with me that that was an awkwardly stupid suit? And then you're probably going to argue that it was meant to be awkwardly <laughs> stupid because you seem to be <laughs> able to see past my uh, annoyances. <laughs> no, you know, I, 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 always, um, I, I always sort of give the artist the benefit of the doubt that things were intentional unless... They weren't, you know, um, and I and I feel like there were such smart people and talented people working on this film that it was probably meant, especially if we're meant to sort of be lambasting his 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 past action hero life as we are, um, that it makes sense that this the suit wouldn't be the coolest thing in the world. It was uh, awkwardly awkward. Um, and so, yes, I'll, I'll give you that they probably did it deliberately. They're, they are bright filmmakers, so yeah, I'll give them that one. Um, well, is there is the character of Birdman? Do you think is it based on it? What is this? What is the superhero that's what? most closely? I was thinking to? about this as I was driving back because we saw a late night session of this. So I was driving back alone on the streets of Sydney, and I thought about. It, I thought if I hadn't ever heard of Batman, and Batman <laughs> was the character in this film, and Birdman was the popular cultural icon that. I'd grown up with, would I be thinking, oh, how stupid that they went for a bat? Like Birdman makes sense, but Batman is just a complete stupid ripoff. And I, <laughs> I just, it was very hard for me to put myself in a mental position of trying to evaluate um, a guy with a bat suit with um, bat shark repellent and see whether that would be something that I would believe <laughs> if it had been in this film <laughs> and it had been uh, Batman, the unexpected uh, virtue of ignorance. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, what you used and we never really get a sense. We never really get a song, strong sense of this backstory of Birdman, or that it has this tremendous um, cultural significance. And it, except when maybe when um, he's Japanese being interviewed, viewers, yeah, yeah the Japanese. Japanese. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Birdman! <laughs> Birdman four. You're like no, 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 no. Oh, shut up! But <laughs> don't you just know that that would have come from? from both of them, you know, Norton and he, like, well, I don't know. Do, do we think that there was any improv in this? Or was it all, like, incredibly tight? I mean, how much credit he goes to the writer? Am I in, I don't know, I just assumed. Does anyone know whether this was kind of like a tight script? It, it felt so virtuosic, and I, t 
to me, it feels like every every word was crafted. But I don't know. That's maybe what we're supposed to think. I'm 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 not See, an actor. I, had, I think that. Sorry. I whole, no, I just had that whole New York. They would have rehearsed it and have improv and you know method acting kind of thing, and that the characters would have brought stuff. But, the, but they had what to hit some pretty they, um, defined points. You assume with the shooting. Yeah, so so maybe it was improv if there was some rehearsal. But you know, it seemed like. But really on the day tight, they were nailed, really right? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't. Um, I mean, we. Did you have the did you have the same experience as me um, where I, I didn't actually know that it was a long take movie I didn't have that expectation so when the movie starts and then they're not cutting and they're not cutting and there's the whole scene in the dressing room where he's chucking stuff around and then I'm thinking okay they're gonna cut any second now and it's gonna be a spectacular long shot and and then everybody will applaud but then they didn't cut for <laughs> what? And, I mean, there was no seam for the next fifteen minutes or something like that. Did you Did you guys know it was it was a no cuts movie? I knew it was long takes uh, going in. I didn't know it was like kind of fully there. And I guess I was I I don't know. What do you think of the opening of the player? Because that for me was a classic long take, oh, yeah. um, establishing mm-hmm. shot that was a ballet of choreography that I just loved and embraced and just felt like I was being given a gift. But it, what's, what's interesting about that sequence is that it's not uh, of the, the intro to the player. Yeah. I feel, unless I'm wrong, much like Touch of Evil, it was all on a crane and it's not Steadicam at all. It's all, you can see the camera going up and down and always sort of notably anchored to the same fixed point in a way. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Like the camera sort of goes into the window and then comes back out because, it, you know, with the meeting with Buck Henry. But we always feel like it's a, it's a different sort of ball, balletic camera movement. But this one, the camera really does feel weightless in the way that it flies around. I'm so glad you mentioned uh, Touch of Evil because that sequence is uh, a lesson in filmmaking. I mean, that is just a spectacular sure. piece of – and also uh, audience direction. Because that's one of the things about this, that you don't have the benefit of being able to direct the action from the editorial cut tool. Like you've taken that tool away in, in much the same way you mentioned about VR. You know, in VR, you can look in any direction. Theoretically, you've got to use things like sound and, and action to direct the audience to where you want them to be looking. But in this, we just don't have the, the tool that we rely on so much for pace, for, for direction, for for informing the audience as to what they should be either feeling or or sensing, and I think Touch of Evil was a just a genius version in that. Well, it would be, wouldn't it? Like you know, had a reasonably good filmmaker directing it. <laughs> I, I also um, want to pick up Adam and, and Mike on something you just said about what you knew going into the film, um, because it's a really interesting thing. I didn't know. Well, what I'd read was that it was like a one continuous take. And I actually didn't take that away as it is a one continuous take type of film. So I I saw a tweet, I think it was from Edgar Wright, saying that. Um, And the other thing is the trailer for the film is so deceptive in a way because it shows all the visual effects shots, you know, the, the, the destruction and the sort of craziness. And I think that's quite clever trailer making in some ways because you think, oh, we're going to see all this in the film and it's not actually till... It's not absolutely. Up to the end, it, is it, it? Yeah, and it was a it was a way to trick audiences into seeing essentially an art film. <laughs> yes, with some th- really nice visual effects in it. I think so. I think that's what you know. That's why they did it, and you you really deceived it. But 
you know, I went away really happy. But so that always to me is an interesting thing going into a film. You know, sometimes we've we've actually covered the film as in terms of FX Guide and, and you know, it has to be ruined in that way. But this one we hadn't hadn't heard anything about the visual effects or the cinematography. But I thought that there'd been a lot of pre work done in the trailer and just a little bit of stuff around the internet about what was actually going on in the film. You know what was really interesting for me? The number one reason I wanted to see this film was the DOP. And yeah. that isn't always the – no, look, I should be careful when I say this. I love DOPs. I think that's like the most interesting people uh, in a film. And I love uh, behind-the-scenes people in particular. But there aren't that many. Um, there's probably a handful, you know, count on one hand of, of DPs. And if you told me they were had shot the film, I'd be like, on the basis of that alone, I'd be interested to see the film. Um, and, I agree. Uh, and, and he's so um, – his talents are, are – um, He's he's prolific. He's prolific, but he's he can his range is huge. He can do um, a Terrence Malick, or he can do a Quaron, and he and and he always seems to put his signature on it. And yet, those are very distinctive filmmakers. That yeah. I wouldn't say he overshadows them. It's just it's remarkable that he can get any sunlight, <laughs> given the the strength of the directors. You know, because uh, you just you know feel like there's a sort of a single artistic vision on many of those films, and yet. No, you, I think you're absolutely right. He, uh, he really, and, and I don't know how he came to be so. But I mean, he's the the kind of go-to most interesting DP working right now in terms of challenging your understandings or uh, your views in terms of cinematography. If I was a student of of cinematography right now, I'd be like absolutely on my list of things I definitely want to see no matter what. Absolutely. Who else? Who else would be up there? I mean, Deacons is just uh, you know. An absolute hero of mine, and uh, and I'm I'm very rarely disappointed, if ever, um, in what uh, he produces. But there's, you know, I mean, there's. It's interesting because I certainly don't have anyone in costume or uh, uh, something like that that I would be like, well, I'll go and see their film no matter what. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I guess there are a few uh, visual effects supervisors that definitely would be in that category. But yeah, it's um, it's amazing. I and also don't feel as I, I did, you know, make this earlier point about that show off coming down from the raftery kind of shot. With the exception of that, in this film, it could have been what we'd affectionately say is incredibly self-indulgent and uh, self-serving and just, you know, pompous. But it didn't come off that way. I, I don't think that the, it came off like he was just trying to show how clever he was. It wasn't like a, a DP who'd got to a point where it was um, about just wowing us with another bigger than Ben-Hur or reacting to the fact that it was all very easy to do it in gravity because it was CG. So, all right, I'll do it on the ground for you just to show off. I didn't get that at all. What no, sort of I think it was simply, it was simply virtuosic. To me, it was, yeah. it was just watching the masters of every craft in filmmaking coming together to do something delightful. And imagine if you were the, if you were the VFX house tasked with matching the work of um, Inaritu and Ed Norton and Lubezki and you, you know, and then the spotlight's on you to do absolutely like mind-blowing work. That yeah. would be crushing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, there are times when there are DPs that are really, I mean, Gordon Willis on The Godfather was just a moment in time where like he just owned it. And uh, they're just, you know, it just feels like this is his time and, and these films are remarkable. But uh, I'm wondering what the lensing was on it. Like it, it, uh, cause the other person that we should probably give some total 
sort of praise to is, yeah, whoever bloody did focus pulling. Mm. Oh, I know. It never Amazing. went soft for us for a frame. It, How it the was hell did they do that? Incredibly sharp. Yeah. I mean, I mean, just they'd have to hit their marks, but nevertheless, man, that would be a mother of an exercise. It did. But I mean, it did, in fairness, they probably shot it in such a way that um, the range of focus was a little bit more than typical film or, you know, t- typical style of you shooting. You mean like up a, at five, six or, or, or seven? Yeah, or yeah just to give them more leeway. Um, I mean, maybe they tried on, it a few different ways. It was shot on Ari Alexa, right? So it wasn't as if they were, um, I mean, that's a completely reasonable thing to be doing. Um, but it wasn't, yeah, I don't know what the... Um, the lensing was, but it must have been a relatively small subset of lenses because uh, I'm pretty sure they were shooting on Zeiss um, lenses. But I mean, you wouldn't think they'd have that many because it needed to look like it was sort of, you know, following through. Um, the one thing, the one artifact I did notice, um, whichever, whichever, where kind of distracted me was um, that because they'd done stabilization, uh, there was a scene on the in the outside uh, on the roof with. Ed Norton and, and um, Emma Stone, where the, the lights on the building across the street were kind of um, artifacting in a weird way, like sh- sort of, uh, there were, what do you call it, trails. There were like very tiny trails that sort of j- jittered a little bit. Did you I notice s- that? I saw that as well. Yeah, that was slightly distracting because uh, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, oh, is any of that actually a digital environment? You know, but then I realized, well, that's the reason it's not a digital environment is because of that artifacting, you know, you could tell. But yeah, that, that distracted me a little bit too. But what, it, what a tremendous amount of stabilization they, they must have had to do on this movie. So, so there's these big effect shots with the destruction sequences, which I said looked good. There's this uh, invisible effects. There was one visible effect that I was really curious as to how they did, and I haven't read anywhere, and many of you guys have. It was when this moving free-floating camera settles looking up at a building and then we suddenly have time lapse of the entire bloody building and then we come out the other side and, and pick it up the next day and i mean like i i guess intellectualizing it now i could say well they're just showing off by not even doing a cut when they had to you know jump forward hours but more to the point i was so impressed at how you managed to get a camera to a position then do a time lapse and then come out of it seamlessly um, do we think they were digital? Do we think that was just uh, tracked in really nicely? Um, anyone got any clues? Or did, am I alone in thinking they were just really nice shots? No, that was really nice. And I, one, of the, one of the effects I remember, I, I would, if it were me, I would have done the, the buildings digitally just to not have to match moves and everything. Ian, any clues? <laughs> I've no idea how they did it, but I, I, I'm assuming it's, a, it's just a solid match move. Um, because how do you how do you stop and and the camera so so well? Especially it it is it's a sort of floating shot, isn't it? It's not a not a steady cam shot necessarily, but it's kind of more like a once crane it down. settles. Uh, I'm thinking of the one looking up at the building. Once it settles mm. on the building, it is rock steady during the time lapse, and then it just keeps moving again. Um, from how I remember it. Yeah, no, I know the shot. I just, I have no idea how they did it, but it, it was All really right. nice, wasn't it? And you, it, you kind of, it's a bit like what you were saying before, Adam. You're really expecting, right, here's going to be the cut. Here it is. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't come. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I wonder how much of that speaks to the emotionality of the, the, the character that we're supposed to be feeling his impending. You know, like I, like I said before, like we're waiting for the cut. The cut is the moment we get to breathe, but this character never gets to breathe. And so it sort of draws us in in that way as well. Yeah, 
Yeah. The acting was so good. And you know how uh, the, the moment that I realized it was genius was when I thought I detected a fake bit of acting and it was him pretending to act that his <laughs> yeah. father had done something to him. And then I was like, oh, okay, so now just I'm not worthy. You know, it was like, ah, oh, you're feeling like not quite. Just, okay, wait, no, that's meant to be that way. All right, fair enough. I loved the moment when, when well, before Edward, Ed Norton appears on stage and we see the example of the, the horrid actor who then gets, yeah. you know, spoiler yeah. alert, gets a light, <laughs> gets a light to the noggin. Um, I love that, that, that uh, narrative technique of showing us the bad thing before showing us the virtuosically good thing. That was really fun. And then you see Ed Norton on stage doing his thing. He's probably completely hammered. He probably hasn't slept in three days, but he's acting the socks off of the guy we saw in the role before. Yeah. I, I also loved... Um, you mentioned of, it before. I don't think that's how the expression goes. <laughs> Sorry. So. Um, you mentioned it before, the Zach Galakvanakis character, when he when he mispronounced Martin Scorsese's name, I just <laughs> I lost it in the cinema. Yeah. <laughs> I'd yeah. love to know whether that was impromptu or whether that was part of it, but um, that was great. Yeah, I think it, I was thinking about that too. That was the one of the, that was actually one of the moments that did take me out of the story. I just felt like that was Zach Galifianakis goofing off. <laughs> no uh, one says it like that. So, Scorsese. So let's think about that for a second. We've got these incredibly good actors. Um, and let's talk about the stage on the stage for a second, because there's some really interesting things that happen on that stage in terms of jumping time. You know, he'll step forward in a rehearsal and then he's in the main performance, that kind of thing. Um, I thought that was really interesting. It was very complicated. There was some um, spinning around the actor type uh, shots that are what you can do on a really good steady cam, but nevertheless, it was very precisely timed. And when you're working with actors, do you like them to kind of explore the space and work it out or do you sort of more prescriptive with what you want from people when you're filming them? I mean, I guess in some oh, respects, uh, yeah. you're filming with people that necessarily are actors. but Oh, yeah. Well, absolutely. And when I work with actors in and it's only in commercials, everything has to be pretty um, uh, preconceived. And I don't really, my style of filmmaking, I haven't been able to, I haven't gotten the chance to explore, you know, <laughs> what I would consider like real acting. I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't well, feel like. You know what I my mean, next question would be is that if you were shooting Ed Norton in a scene like that, surely you as any director would, would so want the collaborative contribution of Ed Norton and where Ed Norton thinks Ed Norton should be or, or Michael Keaton or whoever. Um, you know, it's just like you, you, they have incredibly strong acting choices to contribute in terms of blocking and, and how the character is going to be doing stuff, which is sort of brought up itself in the film. Yet you, if, if they'd done that, then they've like nailed that down to then be able to pull off the camera work to capture it. Yeah, I think that... Um one of the big differences between a great actor and a not so great actor is that they always are aware of the camera and they know what the camera sees without even looking through the lens and they know where every light is. Um, that's been my experience is that, um, when blocking with an actor, they always kind of know where to be and how to look, uh, how to position their, their head, um, and how to project in what direction. But, um, what I do is in the short form, usually no more than two minutes or so. Everything has to be – it's very quick and, and everything has to be very um, concise and efficient. So I don't really get to play with space all that much. So if you don't mind me saying so, one of the best parts about your directing that I just think is so missing for people in the short form 
is your use of pauses. <laughs> You'll often oh, use right. a pause and almost no one has the nerve to do it because you're trying to get down to time. So if there's a pause, that's what you cut out. And more than once, I've seen you just use a pause for, a pause for enormous either comic or, uh, or effect, like right to the point of a kind of like, oh, security, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pauses make people uncomfortable and, and uncomfortable is sometimes good for comedy. And I feel like that, that, that kind of decision making is editorial as much as it is directorial. Um, and but I, you don't, and I feel you don't like, have that in a continuous take film, though. though really, do you? <laughs> no, 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 you don't. Uh, but that's maybe what um, what the the person was talking about when they were talking about retiming so much of the film is playing with that musicality and knowing that um, a beat has to happen seventy five percent quicker in order to get the the maximum emotional effect. Um, and so that I, I think it's amazing that filmmakers have this tool at their disposal now, and that. Um, you know, the director can step into the edit with the editor and say, literally say, I need this person to get in one shot without a cut. I need this person to get across the room 75% quicker so that that next beat can pay off with a, a, a laugh or something. And that we can now do that. It just speaks to the, um, just the incredible tools that we have. But Ian, you and I cover a lot of films where they'll go down to using the hand from this take with the body from that take to sort of patchwork up something. Do you feel like uh, that's disrespectful to the actors? Well, no, because, you know, if, <laughs> nah. you, think, if you think about it, the <laughs> actors have probably done 20 takes. You know, they yeah. understand that they're doing multiple versions to get it right. I mean, in, in the old days, you couldn't cut pieces here and there. Um, when we know that it's happening. They did it you know unashamedly in gone girl but but no one notices it and and the performance is better for it yeah i'm pretty sure i was it was in um finch's uh zodiac that he actually destroyed on set takes rather than allow them to go back into editorial and then possibly end up in the film because he so didn't want that particular type of performance and even though it's fincher and you'd think he'd have final edit on everything he was like no no just delete that file and of course you know for a filmmaking um, crew member, you'd be like, no, I'll get shot. Like, I mean, even you will shoot me. You'll tell me to do it and then later you'll fire me for doing it. <laughs> well, as a director that gets infinite takes, if you're, if you're Kubrick or Fincher and you can burn through 70 takes to get the right perfect one instead of stitching three great takes, to you know, mediocre to great to almost great takes together, then you're going to do that. But if, you, if you're not those guys and you don't have infinite takes and you have to make your day and you do know that the post tools will allow you to stitch three takes together, then it's an incredible power to, to have on set. I know that, I mean, because we do that all the time in, in our work. I mean, the thing about this, though, is that if you try doing 70 takes of these very, very long scenes that are so emotionally draining, you just wouldn't have Keating, you know, in, in the, uh, on the set the next day, he'd be exhausted. I mean, you just, you wouldn't have that luxury. I mean, I, you know, I do voiceovers for some of our stuff, like I'll just narrate something. And I'm trying to get two paragraphs of text out without even the slightest, uh, you know, <laughs> I just, uh, we'll cut that together. Um, now, of course, I'm not a professional, but... Uh, I, there's no emotional <laughs> commitment to me to that. Keating is putting what seems like just everything on the line. I don't know. I'd want an actor to have to do that more than a few times. I feel really. That Anecdotally, what I what I heard was that they they rehearsed this thing like 15 times and shot every rehearsal 
until it got right, and that's how they worked out all the beats and knew where the camera blocking was going to be. Oh, okay. That that's what I had heard. Um, I don't. I wouldn't cite the source, and it might be totally made up, but um, that that is what I heard. Hmm. So, is there anything in the film we didn't like that really? Um, I mentioned that one uh, bit of a comp that wasn't that I hated it, just that it wasn't quite working. But just uh, and and. and our rules, um, just to be absolutely clear on this, Adam, is you're allowed to hate anything you like as long as you can justify why you hate it and what would be different. It sucks is not allowed. But apart from that, I'll let Ian <laughs> go the, first. With the effects? Thinking. Well, with, with anything really. Ian, just let you start. Well, give Adam a chance to think. Is there anything that bothered you you didn't like? Um, uh, you, uh, oh, you know, it's, it can be hard to see um, when social media stuff uh, – makes its way into a script like this because you feel like they didn't get it right. I don't know. We got, I've been on Twitter since, since what, 2006. And it's, so it feels weird to hear a movie, like a movie star say Twitter in, in a thing. And, and be, because it's like hearing your parents say it or something, it just feels weird. Um, so I kind of feel like some of that was off pitch a little bit. Um, but other than that, I, I personally feel like it was kind of a flawless movie. I think I feel the same way. Funnily enough, when we were talking about the seamless nature of the shots and the endless takes, that taking some people out, I was probably mostly taken out by the mirror shots, which I think were brilliant, looked great, but you just know that they can't do those for real. And they, were, and so, and so if there was anything that didn't quite work, it was that I kept trying to look into the mirror looking for, you know, a bad comp or whatever it was, um, even though... Even though they were, and so they were really well done, but that was probably the only thing that actually did take me out of the film. And I, I had the same reaction during um, the Natalie Portman film Black Swan, you know, when they're doing a lot of performances in front of the mirrors. There, it's sort of, I, I've spent too long looking trying. Okay, to now see that's the a really that's a really great film to compare because both of those films are are both uh, incredibly interesting filmmaking exercises and certainly made me feel uncomfortable at times in ways I think I was meant to. Um, mm. I, I would go straight in a comparison to the fact that this film being shot digitally just didn't have inconsistencies of the visual material that I got in uh, Swan and I found that really off-putting in Black Swan even though I thought the film was, uh, uh, you know, incredibly good film. Um, are there any comparisons that you draw, Adam, between those two films? Certainly. It was one of the first – it was one of the – I think two films that I thought of as soon as I left the theater. I thought of, I thought it was, um, I thought Black Swan meets Children of Men <laughs> in an odd way. Same, same DP as Black See, Swan. See now, that, that summary in, in, uh, in so few words is why you have 40,000 followers on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just, you know, it was that, it was that oddly personal story of an yeah. artist. Um, and we, where the camera draws us into their head in, in a, in a way that makes it, that is like you started this conversation with very uncomfortable. We're not used to that, that degree of intimacy. And when a, when a filmmaker can pull it off like this, I think the world is better for it. Yeah. So, uh, did I ask you, did, was there, Adam, anything you, you disliked in the film other than the, uh, I mean, from an effects point of view, as opposed to from a like, reference to Twitter? I, yeah, no, I, I mean, I always kind of, um, what is the word, bristle a little bit f with comic book movie style effects because it's just not my, it's, it's not, it's not my taste in movies where I don't, I, the, the part of the movie that bores me the most about um, like Avengers or Iron Man or something is the part where 
things are flying around and stuff's blowing up. And so I, I, I kind of always lose my attention at that point. And the, and the effect sequence in this, what it had going for it was that it was very short and it was meant to be the spectacle piece that it was. So my attention didn't drift because at, at that point I'd spent an hour uh, and 45 minutes being drawn into the character. Um, I don't so like that, the, that would be my own criticism. I don't like the effect sequence when I feel like what used to happen in the Bond films, which was we'll go into a bit of a chase sequence now, which was clearly done by second unit, not by the main director. There's going to be no dialogue. It's not going to further the plot. We just have to have this sequence of running around here because that's what's in a Bond film. And when it's over, we can get back to the story. And those sorts of sequences I don't like. Um, sure. But I do like a good destruction sim. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and FYI, yeah, was it you, Ian, that was telling me that in the Hobbit film coming up, the the battle lasts for sixteen hours, <laughs> forty five minutes, still right. a long time. Yeah, and it's like so. It'd be really interesting to see if there's motivational reasons why something is happening for forty five minutes. If it's forty five minutes of people just impressively killing each other, I think I, I you know, it's like, well, I just uh, I'm going to get a coffee. Do you want anything? And I'm no. <laughs> I hope it's not like that. I don't think I it just, will be because uh, they're obviously very good films. But you know what I mean? Like it's, if it's got no plot furthering real sort of uh, character arc reason for being there, I don't mind a good action sequence. But yeah. Because yeah, it's true what, what, what I mean. What I struggle with in a scene like that, that this 45-minute battle sequence or any battle sequence, is how, is how did they map it out? Like how did they craft the, the battle beat by beat when a battle is something that's supposed to be so chaotic and how do you capture that chaos and how do you structure it and how do you make it happen? That, that just seems like a Sisyphean task. I don't know how long the beach landing was in, um, in Saving Private Ryan, but every moment of it was worthwhile and it was a long, you know, storming the beach sequence that I thought worked super well. And I'll even go so far as to say when it was redone in, um, in the uh, edge of tomorrow, I still thought it was really good. Um, so I think it is possible to have big action sequences that that aren't aren't like that, like aren't where I check out. Um, but I totally know what you're talking about. As I say, in some of the earlier, you know, go back a few years, Bond films, it was really a case of okay, here is second unit just doing its thing for a bit. We'll just you know got nothing to do now. It's just it's going to go through its motions, and it was almost like the film was a series of interconnected, compartmentalized sort of separate things and I believe they were shot that way I believe they literally were shot that way and that's why it kind of uh, came out as such but certainly not the case in this film as you, as you say it, uh, it really hung together it was fairly long wasn't it Ian it was like about 120 minutes or something the film it wasn't a sort of 88 minute thing no I think it's two hours just, just shy of two hours the film yeah so yeah. it's fairly long fairly long well um, as I say I found it to be uncomfortable Probably in a good way, um, if I was to sum up the film. Adam, how would you sum up the film as a whole? Um, virtuosic, and everybody brought it. <laughs> yep, definitely some very, very good acting. I'm probably not as much in the you know five stars, uh, two thumbs up as you are, but uh, I definitely did like it. What about you, Ian? Um, I really liked it. I thought the acting was amazing. I really love seeing Michael Keaton. And, you know, I totally dug the invisible effects as well, it, it, even though that's not really the centerpiece of the film. It's... It's one thing I was really came away thinking there's even more than I thought was going to be in the film. Yeah, I, I just, the reason I love this film is, is 
things like cinematography and like where the hell to put the lights and how you lit people <laughs> and stuff like that. And it was so good in that respect that uh, the fact that I felt uncomfortable, I'm willing to go along with because I know that's the wrong approach. I know I should just be in it for the story, but I, I just did feel uncomfortable and it's, I'm hard pushed to say I loved feeling that way, but I was in, in awe of the cinematography. So, uh, so there you go. All right. Well, Adam, for people that don't know, uh, uh, you and certainly aren't one of your 39, by the way, you've got like twice as many Twitter followers as me, but in fairness, you did start a whole year earlier than me. So just, <laughs> yeah, FYI. I had a head start, <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but where, um, where, uh, can people like, uh, connect with you? Sure. Well, my, my company is Sandwich Video, so it, that's sandwichvideo.com. And then on Twitter, I'm Lonely Sandwich. Um, and, and that's where those 40,000 followers reside. And Sandwich Video is what we were talking about before, and this great work that you've done, um, in the, especially in the tech community, uh, in really uh, very succinctly uh, illuminating what is often a screen interface into a kind of a very... Uh, uh, amusing or, or informative video. I totally recommend people go and check it out because it's uh, it's what you've done in a lot of those is really uh, a very good exercise, as I said before, in doing something effectively and not just uh, milking every second um, in a kind of typical TVC pounded out kind of way. And Ian, for you, what about you? Um, on Twitter, you can find me at VFX Blog, um, and then also I'm over at FX Guide. So come and check it out. Right. Okay. So obviously, I'm Mike Seymour, and uh, <laughs> pitifully half the number of Twitter followers uh, as Adam. Uh, I've got Twitter envy. Um, but yeah, I really appreciate Adam you being on the show this week. Ian, thank you so much for coming back, guys. We really enjoyed, uh, as we always do, doing these shows for you guys. We get great response from the VFX shows. We've been very keen on this one. And we've got a few big ones coming up, haven't we? We've got. Uh, uh, some big effect stuff in such as Hunger Games and stuff, but also um, a bunch of other stuff before the end of the year. Yes, Hunger Games and um, I'm sure we'll do a VFX show on Interstellar. Stellar, yes, um, Interstellar. Very interesting yeah. film. Yeah, um, it's actually quite a big few effects films, more than I realized. Hobbit and Exodus uh, and, yeah, a bunch of films coming up. All right, well, uh, until then, uh, check stuff out over at FX. Guys, thanks so much for being with us, guys. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. See you. have any questions or comments please email us at vfx at fxguide.com copyright 2012 fx guide llc